This talk is based on a, uh, a piece that I published a few years ago called, uh, I think it's just called the uh, Analects and Moral Philosophy, something like that in the, the Tao companion to the Analects. Um, so if you're interested in uh, references um, or further details about some of the issues that I'll be discussing, that, that's a, a good place to look. Um, uh, the, what I'm gonna be talking about, a little bit updated from, from then, but the, the basic ideas are, are pretty similar. So let's see here. So an overview of what I'm gonna be uh, talking with you about, I'll begin with a little bit about the Analects itself, um, uh, but only only a, a sort of a, a, a tiny bit on the Analects for, them, for the time being, uh, and then talk a little bit more about modern moral philosophy and the ways that uh, the, uh, that has developed, which is relevant to the, the sorts of intersections that one might see with early Confucianism. After talking about a, a few methodological, methodological issues, I'm gonna get into the body of the talk, uh, which is looking at the relationship between three different approaches to moral philosophy and the Analects. Um, so drawing on Kant and, and um, more broadly on deontology, drawing on virtue ethics and drawing on role ethics. And then I'll briefly conclude by thinking about some of the issues that have been raised uh, by these sorts of comparisons and which ones might be ultimately the most fruitful. All right, so let's start with the Analects. So the Analects is a complicated text. Uh, it's authorship, dating, and uh, a lot of uh, issues about the interpretation of the Analects are uh, highly debated. I'm not gonna get into those issues today, um, uh, but I do wanna just set the scene um, uh, by uh, pointing out that we should not be thinking of the Analects as a, on the model of the single author monograph. There was a person who uh, named, who we call Confucius or Konza, um, uh, and seems like there's a fair amount of uh, comfort that scholars have with the, the traditional dates of 551 to 479 BCE for Konza. Um, but he did not sit down one day and decide to write a book that turned out to be the Analects exactly the relationship between uh, his agency and the text we now have, as I say, is, uh, is quite debated. But I think we would, we would be less wrong to think of the Analects on the model of a group blog, uh, where you have posts and comments, um, uh, posts from different authors probably, um, uh, posts uh, that come together over some period of time. Is it a few years or is it Two and a half centuries, right? Again, that's uh, something that uh, there's there's argument about. Um, uh, but at any rate, and then this whole thing gets put together um, uh, into a text. The Analects is more like that than it is like one person sitting down and writing it from beginning to end. Uh, but where on that broad spectrum it exactly is, um, uh, I think it need not detain us right at this moment. Nonetheless, it's been treated as a coherent set of ideas um, uh, for more than 2000 years, both within China and without. And so I think that we can think about the, there's nothing wrong with thinking about the Analects as a, uh, a, a single sort of body of theory. Um, uh, the, the, it, that can't be the only way that we think about it. And there are a variety of ways in which the issues of uh, dating, authorship, and, and so on and so forth ultimately do impact on how we, how we interpret the ideas of the text. 
But at any rate, as you can tell, this is the tip of an iceberg. Um, it's not gonna be my focus today, but I'm happy to get into discussion about this with you uh, as you like in the Q&A. All right, so modern moral philosophy. Prior to uh, the recent decades, modern moral philosophy uh, was basically a matter of the of, of sort of debate between Kantians and utilitarians, um, with the with with uh, Kant being obviously the hero of the former, um, uh, Bentham and especially J.S. Mill being the heroes of the latter, and what they took moral philosophy, what their followers um, down uh, well into the 20th century and even today take moral philosophy to be about is fundamentally looking for rules to govern right action, right? What, how should we act um, uh, sort of uh, ideally a decision procedure that allows us uh, to know what to do. Um, now in 1958, uh, Oxford's own, Elizabeth Anscombe published uh, an extremely influential article that many of you I'm sure know about um, called Modern Moral Philosophy. And this marked the beginning of a shift in uh, uh, the way that at least Anglophone philosophers thought about, uh, thought about the subject matter of morality and ethics. Anscombe argued that rather than thinking about moral philosophy uh, as exhausted by the, uh, the views of Kant and uh, and Mill and their, and their ilk, we should go back to Aristotle. We, we should think seriously about the historical roots of, uh, of, of Western moral thinking and the influences that has had on, uh, uh, on the way the problems in, in, in moral philosophy are, are understood. And we should take seriously um, uh, what psychology is telling us about the kinds of creatures that humans are. Um, uh, there's a degree to which I think she, she wanted us to sort of put moral philosophy on hold while we work out the psychology. It doesn't make, it didn't make sense, she thought, um, uh, to be coming up with norms for creatures uh, where we don't really understand the options um, uh, for, for how we work, right? So that was really a shot across the bow of the way moral philosophy was done at the time. Um, uh, another really important development was Iris Murdoch's Sovereignty of the Good from 1970. Two things I wanna emphasize about that are number one, for Murdoch, Aristotle was not the hero, rather it was Plato. Um, and that may not seem like a big difference, uh, but there's a, uh, a tendency that I'll come back to, to reduce virtue ethics to Aristotle. And even as early uh, as, as Murdoch, that was not what was going on. Um, in fact, among the people who are really pushing the boundaries of this way of thinking about morality. So um, uh, there are multiple sources and we're gonna multiply them some more. Um, and another thing that Murdoch put a great deal of emphasis on was not thinking about moral philosophy as primarily about uh, what Joel Kupperman called big moment ethics, where you've got this sort of the big difficult decision uh, uh, that you have to make. And maybe it's even one of these uh, fanciful things about, you know, a trolley is coming down. What do you do? Do you pull the switch and so on and so forth. Rather, Murdoch emphasized, uh, the, emphasizes the, the moral texture of everyday life. Um, uh, the ways in which our moral lives are, are lived um, uh, in uh, just everyday living, uh, relations to family, relations to neighbors, and so on and so forth, and not through these big one-off choices. And both of these uh, developments, I think, are crucial for the ability of at least, uh, uh, I think, one of, the, one of the most plausible ways for early Confucianism 
and Western moral philosophy to come into contact with one another. So that's why I've been emphasizing these changes. Now there's a few other possibilities that I wanna to, um, to note. One is to acknowledge that there are uh, philosophers who don't think there is such a thing as virtue ethics as an alternative to uh, uh, the, uh, pro the sort of previous um, uh, title holders of utilitarianism uh, and Kantianism. And even Martha Nussbaum, who's often identified as a virtue ethicist herself, um, uh, argued in a, uh, a well-known piece uh, against this category. She said, uh, it makes more sense to understand ethics as divided into one camp that's pro-reason and anti-utilitarian and another one that is pro-sentiment and anti-Kantian. Um, uh, and perhaps if you confine your vision to um, uh, recent centuries of Western moral philosophy, that makes sense. But I think it obviously just sort of begs the question against non-European traditions. It doesn't make any sense to ask whether a Confucian is an anti-Kantian or not, um, uh, at least prior to the 20th century. It, didn't make, it doesn't make sense to ask that question. Um, so I, there's, this topic is, is a, a something we could say a lot about, uh, whether or not there really is such a thing as virtue ethics. Um, uh, but I think that ultimately the arguments for that conclusion are not very persuasive. So I'm gonna set that aside. Another potential issue here is uh, the argument that Henry Rosemont, um, a philosopher and sinologist, first made uh, back in the early 1990s, uh, that Confucianism lacks the concept cluster that, uh, that uh, we think of as morality. Um, it lacks ideas of rights and agency and so on and so forth, voluntariness, um, uh, he thinks, without which doesn't make sense to talk about morality, so there would be no moral philosophy. Well, I think that, um, uh, well, we'll talk more about um, Rosemont a little bit later. Um, uh, this isn't entirely wrong, but I think it's easy to use moral or ethical, if you prefer, in a much broader sense than Rosemont was doing, um, uh, and thus to find ways in which uh, moral philosophy in this broader sense uh, uh, intersects with Confucian concerns, even if you think there's a degree to which his interpretation, his analysis of, of uh, early Confucianism is correct. So this leads Rosemont to talk about role ethics um, uh, as, a, as a particular species of, of, uh, of moral thinking. And, and role ethics is gonna be something that I talk a good bit about uh, later on. So we'll come back to role ethics. There are other possible sorts of theories that one might ask whether they have something to do, uh, how they intersect with uh, the moral philosophy and the analects, uh, moral sense theory, a la Hume, care ethics, um, and for that matter, utilitarianism um, uh, or, or consequentialism uh, and others. And I'm not gonna talk about them in at least the main body of, of my remarks today, in part because not much work has been done to develop these ideas. There's a little bit that's been done to think about, well, is, is, is Mencius actually a utilitarian and so on? Um, uh, there's you know, something to be said for, for these arguments, but I think they're not, they're not super persuasive and they're certainly not well-developed. Um, so I don't claim to be exhausting the territory for you um, uh, today, but hopefully at least giving you some sense of the, the leading candidates uh, for thinking about the intersections between the analects and moral philosophy. All righty. So let's now look at uh, 
a few, diff few different methodological concerns, which I think are important to take seriously. First of all, does using Western moral categories um, uh, automatically uh, distort our understanding of the Analects or of early Confucianism more generally um, in some fashion? Uh, and if so, is this just a, a, a fool's errand? Should we not be engaged in this project at all? So uh, I think that this is something that is better talked about in uh, with respect to actual examples. And so I'm gonna sort of highlight this as a, a topic that might be worth coming back to. Um, I think there are clear instances of problems along, along this line. Um, uh, if you assume that the questions that have turned out to be, be salient in the history of Western moral philosophy are all and only the questions that uh, moral philosophy sort of toot court uh, can, uh, can address. Well, that seems problematic, right? Um, so we need to be open-minded to the ways in which uh, questions are, are posed, even what the questions are um, uh, and, uh, and so on. So there are, are, there's definitely the possibility for problems here. Um, I'm gonna, uh, I, I believe that it's not automatically a problem, but again, it's easier to talk about this once we have some examples on the, on the table. So if, if I don't come back to this issue to your satisfaction, please press me on it during the Q&A. Another issue is what uh, the philosopher Kuang Loi Shun has called the problem of asymmetry. Um, and this is the idea that we seem to be much more uh, and by we, I pretty much mean philosophers worldwide um, uh, who, are, who are interested in any kind of comparison, seem to be much more ready to ask questions like, is, the, uh, is Confucius a virtue ethicist? Um, uh, than to ask something like, uh, is, uh, is Kant a Confucian, um, right? So th that is to give pride of place to the categories uh, that derive from Western philosophy rather than categories that derive from Chinese or other, other traditions. Um, I think this is as an observation about how comparative philosophy has been undertaken, absolutely true. And I also think that it is a real problem. Um, asymmetry is, uh, so unlike the, the first challenge here, asymmetry is, is a problem only insofar as we philosophers around the world engage in comparisons, comparative work asymmetrically, right? We could do it symmetrically, it seems in principle. Um, we could engage in comparisons or more constructive dialogues that give equal weight to categories and questions from different philosophical traditions. Um, and I think that indeed that's to some degree the way in which uh, uh, world philosophical practice has been moving, although we're a long way from, from genuine symmetry. Um, uh, so here too, this is something that we need to keep an eye on um, uh, and uh, we can come back to this uh, towards the end. Finally, there's an even deeper challenge, um, uh, which is can or uh, whether Chinese traditions should be viewed as philosophy at all. Ironically, this is a, the, the idea that we should not view something like Confucianism as philosophy uh, is an argument that is both made by 
um, sort of conservative, old-fashioned uh, voices in uh, Western academia and in Chinese academia. Um, uh, so there are uh, uh, scholars in China who think that uh, partly because of the distortion issue, but also because of other reasons, um, they, let's say, shouldn't use the category of philosophy or zhuxue, right, the Chinese translation, um, uh, to talk about Confucianism because it, uh, it, it misses out uh, on too many of the important aspects uh, of that tradition. Um, and then um, uh, in another way, it's easy enough, well, slightly diff more, hard, more difficult now than it, a few decades ago, perhaps, but still easy enough to find people in, within uh, philosophy in the West who uh, simply deny that, that Confucianism counts as philosophy. So um, again, this is not my main topic today. Happy to talk more about it. Um, uh, I think that uh, both of these views are mistaken, are problematic um, for different sorts of reasons. Um, but if we think about philosophy in a, uh, a suitably open-minded way, I think that it's easy to see that it is valuable to view Confucianism through the lens of philosophy, that it is philosophy among other things. It's not the only thing it is. Um, uh, but then again, uh, the various traditions that we think of as philosophical in the West are not only philosophy either. So um, I feel like these are all things we should be concerned about, be cautious about, but none of them are roadblocks to the enterprise that I'm engaged in. All right, so now, keep an eye on what time it is. Um, the first of my three main cases, um, uh, which is the relationship between Kant and more broadly deontology and the uh, ideas in the Analects. So I think that any discussion of this uh, uh, should start with Liang Qichao, who is a really important um, sort of transitional intellectual with a, a, a very, strong background in, uh, in Chinese traditions and Confucianism, um, uh, who also uh, was, was quite influential in the introduction of uh, Western ideas into China. He wrote an essay on Kant um, that came out uh, in 1903, 1904, um, uh, that emphasized uh, the idea of autonomy um, uh, in Kant, emphasized the idea of freedom of conscience, it ended up making a connection between these Kantian ideas and the, the sort of central, most important idea of the Neo-Confucian Wang Yangming. Um, so he lived in the 15th, 16th century CE, um, uh, his, his idea of good knowing or Liangzhi. So the details of that connection aren't really, uh, they're fascinating, but they're not super important for the moment. Um, the question is why, why did Liang um, want to make a connection between um, uh, Kant and, and the ideas of autonomy and so on, and at least some strands of the Confucian tradition. Um, and I think the answer is that by the early 20th century, there was uh, a increasingly uh, sort of uh, loud drumbeat of criticism of traditional Chinese culture, traditional Chinese practices uh, as having um, a sort of a rigid, um, uh, uh, rigidly imposed on the Chinese people in a way that kept China down, that was causing problems 
uh, for China that helps to explain why China seemed to be so vulnerable to Western power in particular, and even Japanese uh, uh, power at this time. Um, so in other words, there was a, uh, you, could, you could understand this critique as arguing that Confucianism was a uh, sort of heteronymous in, in Kantian terms, right? Externally imposed set of rules um, uh, that was deeply problematic, bad for individuals and bad for China more broadly. And so what we see here from, from Liang is the beginning of a rebuttal saying that in fact, if we use this, these, these uh, ideas from Kant, we can see that um, uh, we can understand what a sort of appropriate kind of morality is. It's one based on autonomy. Um, uh, and we can also see that at the core of, again, at least some of the, the uh, broad and complex Confucian tradition, ideas that resonate very strongly with those of Kant. Um, where it is up to sort of, uh, sort of the in individual agency um, uh, to determine what is good. Uh, and it's rather than these ritual rules uh, imposed from without. So that idea I think was really um, uh, influential, um, very attractive to generations of, uh, of Chinese intellectuals who were sympathetic to Confucianism um, uh, and uh, so I've also got on the screen here the name of Mo Zongsan. So Mo is uh, widely understood as the most uh, sort of creative and important Confucian thinker of the 20th century, Confucian philosopher of the 20th century. Um, and Mo has, in fact, a, a, a lengthy decades long engagement with Kant. He translates all three of Kant's critiques uh, into, into Chinese and thinks that there are a variety of ways in which Kant and Confucianism uh, have similarities. Um, uh, he actually thinks that in certain ways, Confucianism surpasses uh, Kant. Um, uh, and details are complicated, be happy to go into that also, um, uh, revolves around the idea of intellectual intuition, um, uh, which Kant believes only uh, is something only God uh, has humans humans are incapable of intellectual intuition, whereas Mo believes that uh, Confucians have shown uh, that humans uh, can, uh, in fact, do possess uh, intellectual intuition. But at any rate, happy to talk more about that. Um, we then move on uh, to uh, thinkers like Li Minghui. So uh, Professor Li is uh, still with us, um, a student of Mo's who got his PhD in Germany. Um, uh, and has ever more sophisticated developments of this engagement between uh, Confucianism and German philosophy, um, uh, particularly the ideas of Kant. I guess the reason incidentally that I want to say deontology and not just Kantian philosophy is that on th the arguments of people like Mo and Li, um, the deontology that is at the heart they think of Confucianism is as I say, surpasses Kant. So it's not just, uh, it's not just Kant's sort of view. Now, one important thing to keep in mind about this discourse is it is primarily, it is primarily taking place in Chinese. It's a Sinophone discourse. Uh, and one of the striking things about engagements between Confucianism um, and uh, moral philosophy, Western moral philosophy is the degree to which it's been bifurcated with a focus on uh, deontological underst uh, understandings of Confucianism in Chinese language literature Whereas, as we're about to see, uh, virtue ethics and to a lesser degree, role ethics um, uh, seem to be dominating the Anglophone literature. 
there's been more uh, conversation across this, these boundaries uh, in the last decade or so, but, um, but for the most part, it, it is there's still that, that difference. All right, so that's a little bit of a historical account of how we got there. Um, let's look at two arguments on behalf of the idea uh, that Confucianism should be understood as a kind of deont uh, deontology. I'm gonna be drawing here on the works of Li Minghui, whose name I just mentioned. And I would say that there's really um, two key arguments that Lee makes. Uh, the first is to, uh, and they're, they're both interpretive arguments. Uh, the first is to show that the idea of autonomy is present and central in the Analects. Uh, and he cites passages like 730. So that's uh, book seven, uh, passage 30 of the Analects. Uh, is ren, ren benevolence, humaneness, the sort of key virtue of, uh, of the Confucians. Is Ren really far away? If I want Ren, then Ren is already there. Um, uh, that seems to say it's up to me. Um, uh, it's not about some kind of uh, 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 sort of external rule. Um, and, uh, and Lee also, there's a variety of other sorts of passages. I'm, I'm not gonna really unpack them in any detail given time constraints. Um, uh, that sound like they're uh, at least consistent with the idea um, uh, that morality is the sort of um, uh, uh, autonomous, freely willed achievement um, in a la Kant. So one question uh, that could be asked here is about whether or not Confucianism um, uh, encompasses the idea of moral luck. Um, insofar as the situation that one finds oneself in outside of one's control has an influence on how uh, virtuous, how moral one can be, uh, then that seems to push back against the idea uh, that Confucianism embraces autonomy to the degree that Lee believes. Just as moral luck is not something that Kant, Kant uh, is comfortable with, it ought not to be something that a deontological analects is comfortable with. And yet there's some evidence that moral luck is uh, um, something that Confucians recognize, think is important and, think, and need, to, need to work on. Um, so there's at least a, some reason for pushing back against this autonomy argument. Let's see here. A second argument that Lee gives, I'll call it his heterogeneity argument. Um, uh, the idea here uh, is that deontologists think of the good as heterogeneous. There's moral good, and then there's, uh, um, you know, uh, non-moral good, uh, prudence, something, something like that. Um, uh, and they're quite distinct from one another. Whereas a utilitarian thinks that they are, that in fact, the moral, the moral good is, you add up the non-moral good or something and you get the moral good, whatever exactly the relationship is, but there's much, it's much more homogeneous. Um, uh, so, but the, uh, the deontologists insist on, on a, a strong distinction. So here's another passage from the Analects. The superior person concentrates on the right, the petty person concentrates on advantage, which makes it sound perhaps like the Analects is making precisely this kind of a distinction, um, which would then enable um, uh, a difference between say, acting out of duty, right? Um, of the Kantian idea, that would just be concentrating on the right, which doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with one's advantage versus conforming to duty, 
you're doing the right thing, but you're not necessarily doing it for the right reason. Um, so I think that uh, one can pretty readily see how this might ground uh, a, uh, the idea of a heteronomy of the good um, and, and thus potentially a deontological approach to morality. Uh, a question sort of uh, that one might draw on to push back here is whether Lee, whether advantage is indeed a distinct realm of value um, uh, or is it just a sort of a selfish approach to the one unified realm of value? Um, uh, there's been a little bit of debate about this uh, in the literature, uh, but I won't dwell on that now. Okay, so let's now move on to number two, uh, virtue ethics, relationship between the analects and virtue ethics. Uh, as I said, this is primarily a uh, English language uh, approach to Confucianism. So far as I know, there's no actual causal connection, causal tie back to, um, uh, to Anscombe and her modern moral philosophy um, uh, essay, but uh, I, I'm not 100% sure about that. The virtue ethics approach to Confucianism really blossomed at Stanford University. Um, uh, David Nivison uh, in the philosophy department, Lee Yearly in uh, religious studies, um, and, and, uh, and their students, um, PJ Ivanhoe, uh, one, one of them, and then a whole, a whole variety of other folks who uh, studied with them uh, have been very influenced by this, uh, this way of approaching Confucianism. Um, primarily drawing on Aristotle and to some extent Aquinas. Uh, Yearly's book on Mencius and Aquinas uh, is an early classic in this, in this genre. Um, and uh, this has now gone um, more recently beyond just early Confucianism and just Aristotle or uh, an Aristotelian like Aquinas. Um, uh, and there are a variety of other sorts of uh, uh, encounters, dialogues, uh, comparisons uh, that have been uh, done in, in recent years. Um, so that's briefly the history. Now, there is a little bit of uh, uh, virtue ethics approach to Confucianism in uh, Chinese language literature, particularly from um, uh, Catholic philosophers in Taiwan, uh, influenced by the sort of the scholastic tradition, uh, but it's, it's very much a, a secondary trend versus the deontology. So why might you think that the uh, philosophy of the Analects ought to be understood through the lens of virtue ethics rather than deontology. I think there are three kinds of arguments. And the, uh, uh, the most common one is simply that it is overall the best explanation. Um, uh, and obviously this relies on, as, as indeed does, uh, does uh, Li Minghui's approach, relies on thinking about the Analects as a whole, um, uh, and then uh, there's a you know, variety of different sorts of considerations that are, that are brought up here to suggest that there's a much better fit between uh, the virtue ethics, its um, promotion of uh, thinking about living a good life, um, being a good person as the central question of ethics, as opposed to acting rightly as the central question of ethics, um, uh, and so on and so forth. Things get a little murky because, of course, Kant has his virtue has virtue theory. Kant talks about virtues, um, uh, and uh, as do the utilitarians, uh, in to one degree or another. So, um, uh, it's not 
just the fact that virtue is central to uh, to the Analects doesn't isn't on its own a knockdown argument that it, this is a form of virtue ethics and the debates about well what exactly is virtue ethics um, further muddy the waters but on the whole right this is I think the most common kind of argument. Sometimes people try to argue that there's uh, there are passages that just explicitly show uh, that the deontological interpretation is a non-starter. So Analect 1721. Uh, is a, uh, a passage in which Kongza is uh, speaking with, with one of his students and is, is being rather critical, in fact, of, uh, of one of his students and uses, it's quite central to this passage that he uses the idea sort of, uh, so his, his student is saying, do we really have to have this lengthy period of mourning for our, our uh, parents? And Confucius says, well, if you're comfortable with a shorter period, then you go ahead and do that. Um, uh, and this idea of uh, feeling comfortable with, with, with something seems to be um, uh, is, is quite important there. Um, the fact that this student does apparently feel comfortable with a shorter mourning period is grounds for criticizing him, in fact, um, after he sort of leaves the room. But uh, there's debate about whether this, the, the role of this, what looks like a feeling, right? Um, automatically shows that we are not in the realm of deontology. Uh, Li Minghui actually has a, uh, a very interesting um, uh, controversial argument about this being a particular deontological style of, of uh, moral feeling, um, uh, which he, he wrote a whole book about the subject. But at any rate, so there's arguments along these lines. Um, and then I think uh, another interesting kind of uh, approach is to say that understanding the analects as a, a kind of virtue ethics is the most fruitful approach um, uh, in that it illuminates aspects of the text that would be missed otherwise. I think the deontologist would say the same thing um, uh, and that it uh, perhaps contributes the most fruitfully to ongoing debates. These are tricky matters. I'm gonna come back to fruitfulness as I wind down. All right, so last, uh, main option um, in the uh, in the current literature uh, is role ethics. So Henry Rosemont on your right, uh, Roger Ames on the left, um, and as I mentioned already, Rosemont back in uh, the early '90s was arguing uh, that there was an important way in which something different was going on in early Confucian moral or early Confucian thinking, uh, uh, ethical thinking, maybe we can say. Uh, uh, as opposed to uh, the moral philosophy in the West. Um, so instead of rights-bearing individuals, we have what he called was calling role-bearing persons. Um, and then together with, with Roger Ames, uh, they developed this idea um, in more recent years of Confucian role ethics. So I'm calling it role ethics. They call it Confucian role ethics. And they understand that uh, not as a particular kind of a broader species of role ethics. And there are people who've written about role ethics in various ways um, uh, in, in the West, although it's not too sad, it's mostly about like professional ethics. But uh, Confucian role ethics is a sort of sui generis thing onto itself. Um, and the emphasis they put uh, is very much on its difference from Western forms of moral theory, including its difference from Aristotelian virtue ethics. So let me give you one slide about what I take to be their main argument for 
uh, for this difference. So the first premise is a broad interpretation of early Confucian thinking, including the Analects um, uh, that uh, Roger Ames, together with both Rosemont and another major collaborator, um, uh, have put forward in a, in a number of books. And the idea is that Confucian thinking is, as I say here, anti-foundational, anti-essentialist, processual, um, uh, and so on. So that's, uh, so premise one of this argument is this whole interpretation of Confucianism. And then the second premise is that if we use virtue ethical vocabulary or even worse and more implausibly deontological vocabulary uh, or, um, uh, or other sorts of approaches from Western moral philosophy, the result is gonna be to force the master, that is master Kong, Kongs or Confucius, force the master more into the mold of Western philosophical discourse uh, than, it, uh, than it ought to be placed. Um, and this makes it, as they say, difficult to see the Confucian vision as a genuine alternative. I think that what I wanna emphasize is the argument here is, uh, is less about, look at this passage, this fits with a particular antecedent um, uh, approach to morality in Western discourse. So we should use that way to understand it. Rather, the emphasis here is on the, uh, the worry about asymmetry um, uh, that, I, that I put forward, put forward or earlier, or the worry about uh, the ways in which Confucianism uh, would be distorted. Um, uh, and so Ames and Rosemont really want to um, argue that Confucian moral philosophy is different. It's a genuine alternative. And so because of this meta um, uh, argument, this methodological sort of concern, um, uh, they resist looking uh, at the ways in which Confucian role ethics um, uh, has significant overlaps with, uh, with virtue ethics, or rather insist on highlighting uh, what they see as the differences. And there's, there's uh, uh, lots of debate over, well, how deep do these differences really go, uh, and so on. All right, but it seems to me that I should be getting towards my conclusion here. So let me talk about, by way of concluding, about two different kinds of fruitfulness. Um, uh, I've mentioned the best explanation argument, the explicit contradiction argument. I don't have much more to say about that at the moment. Um, but I think that it's important to highlight the difference between two ways in which a, an interpretation of Confucian moral philosophy can be fruitful. One is interpretive fruitfulness. That is, if we use a particular lens um, uh, to look at the Confucian text, that we find things that we wouldn't see otherwise and things that are to some degree really there. Um, uh, so that, that I think is uh, Brian Van Norden's uh, main argument um, for using virtue ethics uh, as a, a framework to understand uh, early Confucianism, uh, that it's gonna help us to understand things better, right? It's gonna lead to better interpretations, partly because the, the, the genre of uh, Confucian writing um, uh, is very uh, elusive. We have these collections of, of uh, short fragments um, or short dialogues uh, that don't uh, lay out all of the thinking, um, all of the premises, all of the, uh, uh, all of the theory that might be implicit there. And so 
um, we can better understand, this argument goes, um, uh, what's going on in the text, at least one, one dimension of what's going on in the text, if we draw on one of these Western moral uh, uh, theories, or indeed, if we choose not to draw on them and to go the Confucian role ethics approach. So uh, that's one kind of fruitfulness. But uh, there's another kind, which I'll call dialogical fruitfulness, um, uh, which is more open-ended, more constructive. Um, uh, what are the fruits of engaging in dialogue between two different sorts of philosophical traditions? Um, uh, so between Confucianism and deontology, right? So it's, I think that Mozong-san's central goal in engaging with Kant is not interpretive fruitfulness, but actually trying to, well, you could argue that it's just, his central goal is just trying to show that Chinese culture is superior. Um, I think that's uh, uh, uncharitable. Um, uh, I think that he is convinced that there are central insights uh, that have been about the human condition uh, that have been captured uh, by uh, Confucian thinkers and that by engaging in this dialogue with, uh, with Kant, he's able to um, uh, make more explicit what those insights are in ways that ought to convince uh, Kantians as well as, um, uh, as well as others. With respect to virtue ethics, um, uh, I think that the same sorts of issues are potential, potentially there, that there may be insights from the Confucian tradition uh, that people uh, with backgrounds in, in Western virtue ethics can come to see and learn from um, uh, insofar as, right? So these, these uh, both of these points require that we assume that what's going on here is not just some kind of kind of hermetically sealed cultural discourse that only is relevant to people of that culture, um, uh, but it's an, it, it, it involves thinking about it as philosophy, as things uh, relevant more broadly to humans and to, uh, to our world uh, so that we can, we can learn from one another across these different boundaries. Um, in this context, role ethics, I think, um, uh, risks abandoning whatever one might be able to get out of dialogue um, uh, in order to um, uh, avoid the worries about asymmetry, um, uh, role ethics seems to want to not notice uh, potential um, sort of areas of sufficient similarity where there really should be some kind of room, uh, room for rapprochement and, uh, and mutual learning. Um, and I think this is based in a judgment about the status of sort of comparative power and the, the possibilities for genuine dialogue, right? If, if dialogue ends up always emphasizing uh, the, the, the strengths of, of the Western uh, canon and uh, uh, instead of ever seeing ways in which there's room for, for, for learning and growth, well, then you might be skeptical about whether uh, dialogical fruitfulness is a genuine alternative. Um, and I think that there's a degree to which um, uh, Ames and Rosemont are, are indeed skeptical about that. Um, I'm more hopeful uh, and I will end by um, noting that this kind of comparative engagement, so comparative philosophy, not just in the sense of comparing X and Y, 
but what is often now called intercultural philosophy or uh, you know, a lot of different words for it. Um, uh, but thinking across boundaries, uh, across borders and across languages um, is something that clearly has many risks. There's a lot of ways you can go wrong and um, you, know, you may be about to press me on, on some of those ways in which one can go wrong. Um, and the rewards are uncertain, right? There's no guarantee uh, that there is a, uh, a payoff that we're gonna, we're gonna get from engaging in this kind of comparative conversation, engaging in dialogue uh, between traditions that have very different sorts of, um, uh, of starting points. I've talked in, in some contexts about the uh, sort of the constitutive gamble of comparative philosophy, right? The idea is that if you put significantly different traditions into dialogue with one another, there's the, I think a bigger possibility for payoff than if we engage in tiny little epicycles um, uh, of sort of Kuhnian normal science um, uh, with respect to one tradition at the moment we're in right now. So I think that there are risks, but there are also potentially big rewards for thinking about uh, how something like Western moral philosophical um, uh, theories might indeed um, shed interesting light and lead to interesting new uh, answers when, uh, when that light is shown on the analects.